It says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It also says in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I'm <coughs> sorry, kidding. Um, sorry, I threw myself off. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day that Jesus will return, drawing near. So two, two introductory thoughts. We've been working through a series which we've entitled Cloud of Witnesses, and I just referenced the cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and let us consider how we might encourage one another because it is an endurance race to this life of following Jesus. It is not for the, the, the light, of, light of heart, light at heart. Um, it's an endurance race. It's an adventure, to be sure. Um, but we need each other. In fact, Jesus meets with us when we gather together. Like I reckon he can do it online as well, but there's something very unique about meeting together like this. Even in the, the seemingly small, seemingly insignificant little interactions, it's amazing how Jesus can show up and how we can encourage one another. Um, so that's what we're doing. That's, that's why we do this every week. Um, I personally have a deep, increasingly uh, deepening conviction that this is important. This is really important. And there are going to be seasons in life when you're feeling encouraged and you're good, you're strong, you're doing your thing. But then someone else will come into this place hoping someone might actually see them and encourage them. And then the other way around, you might find yourself really, really struggling one day and you think, maybe if I show up in that place. And there's other places to be sure. But maybe if I show up here on a Sunday morning, there'll be someone there who can reciprocate the encouragement. So thank you for being here this morning. It's a big deal. Um, I feel encouraged, so thank you for that. In our series, we've been working through the cloud of witnesses, this long list of brothers and sisters, saints who've gone before us, who've also trusted God in their own unique ways. Uh, last week with Sarah, this week we are all the way up to Joseph. You guys ready for Joseph? This is an epic story. So let's go in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, starting in verse or chapter, Genesis 37, verses 2 through 5. This is our introduction to the life of Joseph. Let's see if we can't get some encouragement this morning. Joseph, being 17 years old, just a kid, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And Joseph, 
brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, his father, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. The story of Joseph unfolds over like literally the rest of Genesis, chapter 37, all the way to the end, chapter 50. Um, We're going to work our way through the entire story this morning. I've broken my message this morning up into, you're going to think I'm kidding, 12 parts. (laughs) Buckle up. Coffee's in the back. We're going to get through this. You think I'm joking. This is a 12-part sermon. (laughs) It's actually important, the story of Joseph. I mean, you could easily just sort of like drop in chapter here, chapter there, and just get something incredible from it. And that's fine. We could do that. But sometimes you got to get the story. Like you, it's, if you don't actually get the whole story, you, you miss the essence of like, what is this really? How, how am I, how are we meant to be encouraged by this guy, his story, and the way that he trusted God through all the ups and downs of his life? So part one of this 12-part epic, dreams and family. Joseph, 17-year-old kid, he's got a dream and he's got a family. Surely we can all relate with this starting point. We all start out young, full of hope, twinkle in our eye, big dreams. What what, what did you want to be when you grew up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Anyone, anything? Rock star. Yeah. Um, Astronaut. That's right, Megan, I'm pointing right at you. Ballerina. Basically the same thing. Um, I wanted to be, I had like this hybrid vision for my life. I had a dream. I wanted to be um, like a a James Bond, uh, you know, what do you call it? Agent, secret agent, right? Secret agent slash hermit. For some reason, I had in my mind, I wanted to live in a cave. It was like this weird Batman kind of thing. I wanted to live in a cave. I'm still fascinated with caves. I love caves. I love splunking. But we all start with like all these high hopes. Anything's possible. We play make-believe for days and days and days on end. And we also all have families of origin. Uh, Families can be like the very, very best part of your life. If you've got a decent family, not a perfect family, that doesn't, that's not a thing. Um, If you've got a good family, man, what a gift. Not so good, it can wreck your life. All the best and hardest stuff in life, I believe, forgive the generalization, I believe to varying degrees all the best and worst stuff of life can be traced back to like those early days, family stuff. It's formative, it's wonderful, it's hard. And this is where the story begins. Joseph, he's got this dream and he's got a family and those two worlds 
come together in, in the most spectacular manner. Now, to be fair, quick qualification, uh, the dream Joseph had, if you're not familiar with the story, he has it twice, essentially. And the dream is, in essence, uh, his family, his brothers in the first dream, all bowing down to him in the dream. And he thinks it would be a good idea to share this dream with his brothers. Go, go figure. They hate him. Go figure. Uh, and then he has the dream. Essentially, it's the same dream again, slightly different symbolism. This time, his, his parents are also included. His whole family is bowing down to him in this dream. And he shares it with his brothers and his dad. And they're all like, like they're, not, they're not feeling it. It doesn't, it doesn't bless them. Um, so they hate him. They really hate him. Part two, the pit. This is um, towards the end of Genesis chapter 37. It says, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Classic. Um, it, it gets hard. I actually have brothers and a sister. Um, I'm still struggling to make amends with my, one of my little brothers. Like this story resonates with me in such a real way. Um, something happened. There was... Um, culminating moment and his brothers were like you know what enough's enough this kid's gonna rat on us again this dreamer let's throw him in the pit let's get rid of him let's just forget about him the eldest of the brothers there's 11 of them including Joseph Reuben uh, he talks the rest of his brothers into not killing him he's like look let's not shed his blood that's a bad idea let's just throw him in the pit Storm in the pit. And Reuben, we're told in the story that Reuben thinks to himself, I'll come back later, rescue my brother, it'll be fine. But he's thrown into a pit nonetheless. Judah, it's the fourth oldest brother. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, if I'm rem remembering correctly. He says, oh yeah, let's, let's throw him in the pit, but instead of just leaving him, let's sell him. Let's sell him into slavery. We can profit off of this situation. Judah, excuse me, Judah, my boy is actually sitting. You were supposed to be downstairs. I'm going to say a lot of awful things about this Judah. I'm not talking about you, my boy. Okay, my son. We, I was just, you have to wait. Wait till we get to the end of the story. It ends so good. Okay, but what I'm about to say is not directed at you. Okay. Judah is a jerk. Judah. <laughs> now, this is a part of the story. Judah, he says, look, let's not just throw him in a pit. Let's sell him. Let's sell him into slavery. Look, here come some Ishmaelites. They'll, they'll buy him. We'll get something for him. And so that's what he does. Now, right in the middle of this story, Genesis chapter 38 there's like this whole little side story about Judah. This is why we have to read the whole story. Something happens that like completely builds the, the character and the, the whole plot. 
In Genesis 38, it's like we leave um, Joseph. He's thrown into the pit. They sell him into slavery, and off he goes. We have no idea what happens to him. And now we pan over to Judah. Judah's now left his family. It says that he left his brothers and went down to this other region, this like foreign region where he, he really shouldn't have been going. And he finds a girl to marry, and he ends up having three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. His first two sons, they're wicked. We're told explicitly that these were wicked men. Don't know what they did. Don't know how bad you got to be for the Bible to call you wicked. These were bad boys. They were probably born into some like real broken mess. God actually takes their lives. This is one of these extreme instances of God actually like interjecting in a situation, dealing directly with human wickedness. It's hardcore. Um, the first son, Ur, marries a woman named Tamar. Or dies. The tradition is so that the woman isn't like left to fend for herself, i.e., like die. Um, the tradition is that then the father in law, or Judah in this case, would then give the woman to the next eldest son, which would be Onan. So he does. Onan dies. Judah thinks to himself, I'm not about to lose my third son because of this lady. So he tells Tamar, this is, this is Judah, right? This, is, this, guy's, this guy's not cool. So Judah tells Tamar, go home. Go back to your mom and dad. When Shelah's old enough, then I'll let you marry him so that you have a, like a lineage, a way to survive in this crazy ancient world of ours. He never does it. He forgets about her. He lies to her and forgets about her. He has no intention of, of giving her to his son, Shelah. Tamar has to take matters into her own hands. She figures it out and decides, I'm going to take off my mourning clothes, my grieving clothes, because um, she's still grieving the loss of her husband, Ur, and Onan, I suppose, technically. And she puts on the garments of a prostitute and waits for Judah at the city gate. Judah doesn't recognize her and ends up paying to have sex with his daughter-in-law. Dudes, like jerk is putting it nicely. This guy's, this guy's not, not a cool guy. And it's like emphasized in, in no uncertain terms in the story. That's chapter 38. Okay, there's Judah for you. Worst brother ever. Yep, you're the best. You're the best, different Judah. Okay. Part four, chapter 39, God in the pit. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the garden, Egyptian, had bought him. So that was his new master. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in Joseph's hands. Joseph may have been stripped naked and dumped into a pit. He may have been betrayed by his own brothers and sold into slavery, but the Lord was still with him in his pit of life. 
That's pretty cool. The story could end there. It's like a little, little glimmer of redemption. His brothers betray him, throw him in the pit, leave him for dead, sell him into slavery, ends up being bought by an Egyptian, uh, what the, the captain of the guard, Potiphar. And the Lord is with him. The Lord's with him and he causes all that Joseph's, Joseph touches to, uh, to flourish, to succeed. And Potiphar himself recognizes it. I mean, you're a blessed man. Wherever you go, whatever you touch, whatever you do, you, you have favor. God is with you. And so he puts Joseph in charge of everything. And we're told that over time, Joseph is essentially running the house. The only thing that Potiphar withholds from him is his wife. Naturally, the Lord is with him. And you could fade to black, roll credits, redemption. The story is only getting started. That is not how it ends at all. Part five, chapter 39, towards the end. Joseph is betrayed again. Oh, God's with him. God's blessing him. God is working uh, redemption, taking hard, broken things, being betrayed by his brothers, and now sort of using the situation to, to work out good things. And yet, Joseph is betrayed again. He goes from one pit to another pit. He's accused of sexual assault, falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. Um, and Potiphar's wife gets him thrown in an Egyptian dungeon. And later in the story, uh, that dungeon is referred to as a pit. He's back in a pit. Hmm. That's a twist. God is with him, blessing him, redeeming the situation, and brokenness is still part of the story. Betrayal is still part of the story. So God is blessing him, yet he's not being perfectly shielded from sin. Someone betrays him, lies about him, and he's back in a pit. And God is still with him. Injustice and suffering are part of life. And God doesn't necessarily, but God with you doesn't necessarily mean a free pass out of the pits of life. Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was still with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. There's a pattern. God blesses Joseph, but he's back in a pit. He's continuing to suffer in justice and God is still with him. Now we got a story. Now we got a story. This is um, cohering with real life. Part six, chapter 40, forgotten. Joseph's in prison. God's with him. God's giving him favor once again. Uh, the chief prison guard recognizes, as did Potiphar, that Joseph is blessed, that God is with 
this man and everything he touches succeeds, flourishes, is blessed. And so he puts Joseph in charge of everything. He's in charge once again because God's with him. The story emphasizes that. It's like explicitly several times because God was with him. Because God was with him. And everyone could see it. Potiphar saw it. The prison guard recognized it. So he puts him in charge of everything. Eventually he meets uh, two inmates, fellow inmates. Pharaohs, two two of his top officials, his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. The two chief cupbearer and baker, cupbearer and baker, have dreams while they're in prison. Like one of these dreams where they wake up and it's as if like, okay, that was more than just a dream. That was more than just heartburn. Like that was, that, that, there's something going on there. And then they, they, they end up talking about their dreams and somehow they share their dreams with Joseph and Joseph says, I can interpret your dreams. Or rather God is the interpreter of dreams. Tell me your dreams and I'll tell you what they mean. And so they do. Long story short, one of the dreams of one of the inmates means that they're about to be called before Pharaoh, not to be released from prison, but to be put to death. The other one is going to be called to meet Pharaoh, stand before Pharaoh, and he's going to be restored to his position. Turns out that the chief baker, he loses his head. The chief cupbearer, he ends up being restored to his position before Pharaoh. And Joseph tells the chief cupbearer just before he leaves, don't forget me here. I did nothing. I did nothing to deserve being thrown into this pit. Please don't forget me. And we're told that the cupbearer forgot Joseph. Not only is he in a pit in a pit, but now everyone has forgotten about him. Have you ever been there? It's one thing to like go through the stuff of life. It's another thing to go through it and to wake up one day with this awful realization or overwhelming feeling that no one cares. You're alone. And even if anyone was aware of your situation, they couldn't care less. You've been forgotten. That's heavy. That's real injustice. Are you guys with me? So we got we have to we got to feel the story, right? Like we got to really enter into the emotions of this. Like this is heavy. This is like some heavy, heavy stuff. This is the stuff that would like, I don't know. Your your mind's going to go to some some dark, dark places when you're in that place. Like what's the point of even getting up anymore? Why delay the inevitable? Why not just end it? Injustice is, is, is unavoidable and no one even cares. The one guy who I thought might actually pay it forward, remember me when he stands before the one guy who has the power to release me, forgets about me. This is real. This is, this is the heavy, heavy stuff of life. So he's forgotten. End of chapter 40. Joseph has gone from one pit to another and another. This is pit number three, right? First, he's in the dirt in the desert. Then he gets thrown into prison because he was falsely accused. And now he's being forgotten. 
And yet, and yet, part seven, two years later, chapter 41, Pharaoh has a dream and the chief cupbearer remembers. Two years later, that's a long wait in a dark dungeon feeling like the whole world has forgotten about you. The chief cupbearer remembers. Pharaoh has a dream and he says, can anyone in the kingdom interpret dreams? Oh, I know a guy. Now, when I read this story, I can't help but think, man, that, that weasel, he conveniently remembers now that he might be able to like get some brownie points being the guy that knows the guy who can interpret dreams for Pharaoh. Whatever. Genesis 41, verses 14 through 16. The Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, let me, um, this is worth emphasizing. For most of these stories that we've been working through, this is what, week seven now, we've been looking at all these like characters these heroes of the faith, as it were. And I think we've done a pretty good job. I've, I've done most of the messages. Ben preached a phenomenal one on Jacob. Dave did Isaac. And we, we say it almost every week, that the hero of the story, it's not Joseph. It's, that's, that's super important to remember, okay? Um, however, however, these humans, people just like us, occasionally do some like phenomenal things that need to be highlighted. Joseph, in the middle of all of this injustice, betrayal, pain, isolation, he never stops acknowledging that God is with him, that God is able, that God is still working. And he says, he'll make these comments over and over, almost in every different pit, every different situation. He'll say something to acknowledge, yeah, but God is still with me. This, is, this, isn't, this isn't about what I can do for you. And you almost get the feeling at this point, like it's, if, if it was a, it's become such a deep conviction that now he's like, look it, I've concluded that there's very little I can do to change my circumstances or, or to control the injustice that's happening around me. But I know God can. I can't do much for you, Pharaoh, but I know a God who can. Give, give some props to Joseph. That's, that's good. That's good, right? That's commendable. That's awesome. How he does it, God only knows. Because I know when I'm in a pit and I'm feeling like I've been sinned against and the whole world couldn't care less, it's hard to be like, you know what? I know a God in heaven who's faithful. Wow. Good on you, Joseph. Good on you. I don't know how he does that. But it's admirable. Joseph never stopped acknowledging God's favor. Part seven. Two sons. By the way, he interprets the dream, right? And 
Pharaoh recognizes, like, this, this kid's got something. At this point, he's probably in his 30s, 40s. Who knows? This dude's got something. Let's put him in charge of everything. And so he does. Pharaoh's like, look, you interpreted the dreams. You've got the wisdom. Clearly, you should be the one overseeing my kingdom. You'll, you'll be second only to myself. And so like that, Joseph goes from the pit to power. The story could end there, right? I mean, if, that, if before that wasn't like, this, this, is, this is the perfect ending, right? And he ascends to power. And in fact, he is the one his family bows down to. Fade to black, rolled credits. Right? That would be an epic ending. The story definitely does not end there. Part 7, two sons, chapter 41. We're told that Joseph ends up marrying um, an Egyptian woman. She sounds lovely. They have two sons together, Manasseh and Ephraim. So he names his two boys, and this is what the names mean. Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house, my brother's. And Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Isn't that cool? Part nine. A memory. Chapter 42. Famine had spread all the way back to Joseph's father's house. Um, this is the dream that Pharaoh had. Famine was going to come. In seven years, famine would come. Sure enough, famine has come. It's, we're told it's like spread across the globe. And so uh, Joseph's father, Israel, tells his sons, go to Egypt. I've heard their food, there's, there's food there. Go, go check it out. Go get food for us. We're going to die. So his brothers show up. And in Genesis chapter 42, verse 9, it says, Joseph, when he saw his brothers, remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have not come for food. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Hmm. How about that for a response? A little bitterness, maybe? It's his brothers. He's forgotten the hardship that he went through. He's been fruitful in the land of his success. Life is good. He's moved on. And in a moment, he remembers. It all comes back to him. He sees his brothers. He doesn't recognize, they don't recognize him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him, he recognizes them. And it all comes flooding back. Okay. Now this is the point in the message where it, it, you're gonna start to feel like, is this like group therapy? Like what is happening right now? Like I'm feeling a little triggered. Like you're talking about these like family systems or something. A, a little bit, yes. I actually meant to give the trigger warning at the outset, but that's actually very much what's happening right now. This is like, we are, we are wading like deep into some like, like family trauma. And I suspect that like we're, we're all going to connect with this in some different ways. You thought you worked through it. You had two sons. You've, got, you've built this new life and you've named it. I forgot. It's all in the past. 
I'm, I'm over it, I've forgiven them, I've moved on, and look at my new life. Man, I'm successful, I've got a killer job, I'm married, I have kids, like I'm good. And then all of a sudden you get that call. All of a sudden that brother or that family member or that ex or that, that person that you'd worked so hard to just put in the past has showed up and you're in a memory, in a moment. It all comes flooding back. I know what you're really here for. You're here to stare and laugh at my, I mean, the nakedness of the land. I know what you're doing here. I know who you are, Judah. And I imagine he's imagining that moment when he was in that pit and we're told that he begged for mercy as his brothers looked down, stripped, laying naked in a hole. I know what you're really here for. It's heavy, right? This is the story. I, I, I don't think I'm reading into things at all. You, you can read it for yourself at length. This is an epic, heavy story. Part 10. Joseph's back in the pit, reliving nakedness. <clears throat> I want to share something with you guys. Um, and this might actually trigger some of you guys, so I'm just, I'm just I want to be very, I'm, I'm being really serious now. Um, I don't think I've ever, I don't know if I've ever shared this with anyone before, but it just felt like so relevant to this, this story. When I was, I think I was 20, maybe 21, um, I was living in Southern California, uh, Long Beach. There's parts of Long Beach that are quite nice, other parts that are definitely not so nice. And um, me, my friend Marla, and Tommy. So Marla was a girl, and me and Tommy, two, two, two guys. We decided to go walking on the beach in Long Beach, like in the middle of the night, which is a really bad idea. You're gonna like step on a syringe or something, or get mugged or whatever. We got mugged. So we're walking along the beach, and I can see a guy, I remember him being quite a, a big guy, walking directly towards us as if he'd like parked and he was walking across the beach. We were down by the water and he had a, had a girl with him. The two of us are walking directly towards him and he looks like angry, aggressive, and instantly. Um, like, you know, when it comes to fight or flight or freeze or whatever, I'm, I'm freeze or flight. Never, ever fight. That's like the opposite of, of what I do. And so I was terrified. Um, I thought, oh my goodness, like this, what's, what's going to happen? And I'm, I'm prepared to like, hey, whatever you want, whatever you want. You want money, you want drugs, like just, I'll, I'll do whatever you say. Please don't hurt me. And this guy walks right up. I don't know why he targeted me, but he walks right up to me and just shoves me right onto the ground. And I'm like freaking out. Tommy and Marla, they're like, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, get down, sit down on the ground now. And we all listen to the guy. We all sit down. And he looks at me. He's like, you, give me what you got. What do you got? Empty your pockets now. Do it. I'm like, dude, I got nothing, man. I, I, all I was wearing literally were board shorts. It was like the middle of the summer. I didn't have a shirt on. I just had board shorts on. That's it. He was probably looking for drugs. I'm like, dude, I got nothing, man. I got nothing. Take your clothes off. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about, man? I, I got I got nothing. Take your clothes off. 
And so I took my shorts off. I'm lying there naked in front of my two friends, Marla and Tommy. The dude puts his foot on my neck and is just like yelling at me. Like, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. So that, that kind of experience doesn't just go away because I've moved on. That was, I'm 47 now. It's like it happened yesterday. And I've been through therapy. I've been saved. My heart has been filled with the Holy Spirit. I feel really secure. I feel really happy. I have forgotten many things and I have been fruitful in the land of success. Um, but that, that was a pit that I was thrown in and I was stripped naked with a big boot on my neck and yelled at in front of my friends. Um, and I reckon you've got your own story and I hope it's okay that I shared mine. There are moments when that memory will come back and it usually feels a lot like shame. Like what a, what a weak man I am. What a, what a timid uh, excuse of a man I am. Probably would never be able to, to protect my kids if I had to. You know, these sort of thoughts, which I don't, I don't believe. I don't entertain these thoughts. I take them captive and I say, no, I know who I am in Christ. But there's still an emotional reality that I have to work through. And I can find myself reliving nakedness in certain moments of life. And I don't think I'm super special. Like I'm not alone, right? Tell me I'm not alone. Uh, Joseph hadn't truly forgotten. Uh, God wanted to do something something with, with that pain, that shame, the, the residual effects of Joseph's pit. He was rich, powerful, loved, respected, and in an instant, Joseph found himself reliving that moment back in the pit. Um, the next couple of chapters, we don't have time to go through it all. It's literally a couple of chapters, but it's, it's the part of the story where um, Joseph, you can, you can tell he's like wrestling with wanting to actually like bless his brothers. Because this is the dream, right? That his brothers would come to him and he would be like a savior. Like the dream is actually coming to pass. And he's wrestling with it. It's like he can't quite, he, 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 it's a man who's fighting to forgive, to, to really heal to not just forget, to not just convince himself that everything's okay now, but really working through like the emotion of it, the trauma, and to be healed. And God's in it. God's still with him. And, and uh, we're told that Joseph, he ends up giving his brothers, they still don't know that it's him, he gives his brothers the food that they need and they leave and he refills their bags with all the gold they had brought for the supplies. And they get about halfway home and they realize, oh snap, 
Like he's going to think we stole the food. Our money's still in the bag. And Joseph's the one that did it. And so they come back and they're like, hey, we just want, I don't know what happened, but th- we just want to be honest with you. We still have the money, but we brought it back. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't know what you're, ta- you're talking about. Um, and he, he tells them that to make sure for me to verify that you are who you say you are, I want you to go home and bring your little brother. Because apparently Israel had another son in his old age. His name was Benjamin. Go home, get Benjamin, bring him back and prove to me you are. It's a totally like he's tormenting his brothers. It's ludicrous. It's irrational. But Joseph is like struggling to like he wants to torture them. He wants to pay back. And yet he still really wants to like take care of his family. And he's in the throes of forgiveness. And they come back and they have Benjamin same thing happens over again. They're back for more food. And they're like, all right, we got Benjamin here. We've proved it. He said, okay, take your food, go. And he tells his servants, Joseph tells his servants, take my cup, my silver cup, and put it in the bag of Benjamin. Thank you. And then after they're gone, about a half day's journey, I want you to catch up with them and demand to search their bags because one of them stole my sl- It's the whole deal with the chief cupbearer that quote unquote forgot him in prison. He's like reliving all this trauma and wanting to drag them into it with him out of pain. This, this is some real life stuff. <clears throat> and I skipped the part about how before they sent him he sent them home to get Benjamin. He said, leave Simeon. Simeon means one who listens. And there's all these little like uh, connectors, all these, like he plays with all this symbolism. Leave Simeon. Yeah, the one who listens because you didn't. And when I was crying out to you, you ignored me, you left me to die. So he's like working through all this stuff. Part nine. I'm sorry, part 11, part 11, almost done. Two brothers, chapter 44, they come back. They got Benjamin. Judah approaches Pharaoh and he says, look, please, I'm begging you, don't keep Benjamin because Benjamin allegedly stole his cup. Don't keep Benjamin. Take me. Take me, I'll sacrifice my life, just please. If we go home without Benjamin, our dad will die of heartbreak. Please, please don't do this. Take me, let me sacrifice. Judah, something's happened. This whole time, the story of Joseph is like playing out. Something else is happening in the heart of Judah. He's coming to terms with the fact that, like, we did it. We did wrong. It's our fault that all this is happening. It's my fault. I'm the one who wanted to sell Joseph. Now he's, like, realizing. And and remember, Judah lost two sons of his own. And he's felt pain himself. And so now Judah, the baddie, he's actually having a redemption moment. He's been on a journey of healing himself. And now the two brothers are coming together and we realize, the readers realize, oh goodness, this isn't a story about 
like an underdog who overcomes all odds to, to get back on top. This isn't just a story about Joseph. This is the story of two brothers. This is the story of brothers reconciling and how God does something incredible when he shows up in these kind of moments. This is the story of two brothers struggling to reconcile. Genesis 45, verse one, then Joseph could not control himself any longer before all those who stood by him and he broke down and cried. Joseph ends up telling his brothers, it's me, it's come, come closer, hold on, let me take off my Egyptian garb, it's me. I've been here the whole time. And they all weep together. They reconcile. Joseph says, go home, get dad. Get the whole family, get the whole lot. Bring them to Egypt. God has a place for you here. What you meant for evil once upon a time, God is using for good to preserve the life of many. This is the um, beauty of brothers reconciling. Relationship is about, all about relationship. This is a story about how God, who is the master of redemption, was always present, intervening, faithfully weaving an unbearable, an unbreakable thread of healing and new life for an entire generation. This is a story of God's faithfulness. This is a story of reconciliation. This is a new story, part 12. Can I invite our worship team to join me up front, please? That helps me to land. You know, play me off. A new story. Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. <clears throat> and the story could end there. That's an epic story. That would be a fantastic ending. But you know what? That's only the beginning. Um, remember Jerk Judah? who ends up being just another broken human. Uh, how he had this whole little chapter when he went off and ended up having sex with his daughter-in-law because he's just that kind of guy. And they ended up having a son. You know what his son, he named his son in that little chapter? Perez, P-E-R-E-Z, Zed. Perez, you know what Perez means? Breach. It was actually a breach birth. We're told that uh, Tamar was pregnant with twins. One of them, Perez, stuck his hand out. And the, the midwife was like, oh, there he is. And she tied a scarlet thread around his wrist. And he pulled it back in. And then his brother came out. And then Perez came out. So Perez was like the breach. 
Perez was the breakthrough. Right in the middle of like the most unimaginably like broken situation. There's a breach. You know who eventually became the descendant of Perez? You'll never guess. Jesus. It's in the lineage. And I've got a picture in my mind. I was going to try to find a red thread. I ran out of time. I imagine as the story continues, because that was not the end of the story. It was just like this snapshot of how God shows up in broken situations and where brothers want to kill each other, God shows up and is present and begins to reconcile. And he's not interested in just simply getting you or I out of one pit or another pit or another pit. Because pits are a part of life. This is just the nature of life. We live in a broken world and there will be a pit waiting for you this week and maybe a really big one this year. And and that's just, that's life. And when you find yourself in a pit, you may even feel like, man, the whole world has turned against me. No one knows, no one cares. I'm all alone, which is a lie, by the way. Just feels that way. And God is with you, not just to get you out of the pit, so that you can forget about your past and move on and enjoy the good life because God wants to do something that actually affects a whole family, a whole generation. He wants to reconcile brothers. And this isn't a story about a victim and a, and a um, what's the opposite of a victim? A, a predator, a baddie, a good guy and a bad guy, a poor guy and the, 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 the guy we all like to demonize. No, 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 that philosophy doesn't work in our faith. God isn't interested in calling one person a victim and demonizing the other because we've all been that guy or the other. We've all sinned and we've all been sinned against, which is why we all need to repent and receive forgiveness from Jesus. So what God is really up to in these stories of our lives isn't just to get us out of the pit so that we can live the good life, but to reconcile us to each other that he might do something that affects an entire generation. And when the dust settles, we see the hand of Jesus reaching out with that scarlet thread, that nail-pierced palm dripping blood down his wrist, still reconciling people to each other and all to our maker. That is the story of Joseph. What are you going to do with it? Where do we go from there? What do you do with a story like that? I'll tell you one thing. We're out of time. Can we stand together? Let me leave you with a slightly practical thought. I'll try. One practical is just like, like this, this reframes the way we see life the way we engage with people, the way it's like when someone, when that dude pinned me down, boot on my neck, he's not my enemy. Flesh and blood are not my enemy. What God wants to do is to heal me and that guy. Woo, that's hard, right? That's like, that, that's, mm, mm. That's what God does. That's what God does. He meets us in our pit. Okay, here's a practical. I'm just going to start preaching my sermon all over again. Uh, Here's the practical. Here's the practical. Okay, so you might be in a pit right now. 
you might, I may have triggered you with my story of trauma. And you're thinking, man, maybe, maybe I'm reliving nakedness in my own way. Okay, what do you do with that? My encouragement to you is don't just simply try to like get it healed and move on so that you can like enjoy the good life. Remain in that place. Embrace the tension. Expecting God to do something deeper, more redemptive than just helping you to feel better next week. He wants to do something that's actually going to like restore relationship, maybe. That's going to impact a whole family, maybe. That's going to have generational ramifications, maybe. And here's really, really good news. Your pain isn't just about you. And I don't mean that as like a, like grow up, get over yourself. No, like that's really good news. Your pain isn't just about you. God wants to redeem your pain. He wants to heal you and your jerk brother and that dude on the beach and your whole messed up family and, 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 and the whole world will be made new. Maybe. Maybe. Father, help us. We're going to receive communion. We're going to receive communion now. Um, And this is something we do virtually every week to remember. Um, To remember Perez. To remember in the middle of human frailty, injustice, brokenness, the darkest pit you can matter, there you find the scarlet thread. There he is, breaking out into the dark places the most broken places. There's Jesus suffering for my sins and your sins on the cross. And we take the bread and we dip it in the juice. We remember he gave his body and blood that I might be reconciled to God and to brother. And if you'd like to be a part of that, if you say, yes, that's, I want that story, that bigger, grander, eternal story to frame my story, if you say yes to that, then I invite you, come and receive the elements. Say yes to Jesus. If you're not ready to do that, or if what I said this morning is just, it's just you're just not into it, you're not, you're not ready to trust Jesus in that way, then no, there's no pressure. You just stay right where you're at and we'll sing together whenever you're ready.